the title of this talk is The, the Life-Changing Magic of Seeing Generously. A, a mentor of mine, uh, a teacher, okay, my, my therapist, uh, for many years, uh, we spent a lot of time together, and he had a lot of phrases he would use, he'd repeat. Uh, but one of them was, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. And he'd just say it, you know, like it settled the matter. Like, well, you know, the eye is the lamp of the body. And uh, I mean, he, it was like definitive. And he said it so often that it got to that awkward point that I couldn't admit. I don't know what that means. You know, I, I, I knew uh, Jesus had said it somewhere, uh, but I couldn't remember the context. I couldn't place it. And, you know, Jesus had so many of those phrases that you think you understand what they mean. Like... Uh, Wisdom is vindicated by her children. That's one of those phrases. And you think, yeah, that's, yeah. And then you think, wait a minute, what, what does that mean? Uh, and, and this is one of those phrases, the eye is the lamp of the body. You know it's important. Uh, and since in my case, it was so often repeated by someone who played a formative role in my life, I knew it was important to him. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't get it. And I, I, can see now that I didn't get it because in the truest sense of that word, I didn't get it. I mean, it was so against the grain of my life. Uh, Jesus goes on to say, and this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is Matthew 6, uh, verses uh, 22 and 23. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. He goes on to say, So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It's Matthew 6, uh, 22 and 23. If your eye is healthy. I was recently at a conference and heard a, a speaker uh, say the word healthy used in this context isn't so much about uh, the quality or clarity of uh, our vision so much, though it's related to that. But in this context, she said the closest English equivalent is uh, that captures the meaning is generous. That healthy in this context is closest to our word generous. So you could translate, if your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light. And unhealthy, an unhealthy eye is an eye that is stingy, is not generous, is not charitable. An uncharitable eye. Uh, and, that, and that struck my ear and I did some research and later discovered that that reading, you know, confirmed some of our most ancient and best uh, commentators. But even when I first heard it, 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 it was very uh, captivating to me. Even more so, actually opened the Sermon on the Mount and saw the surrounding context. And I'd never seen this before. Uh, the verses that come right before and, and right after. You know what they have to do with? Money. Money, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. That's the verse before. And then after, no one can serve two masters. We cannot serve God in money. But sandwiched right in between is the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is generous, I never, never noticed that connection because I guess the connection with, with finances had never clicked. You know, why does Jesus say this there about the eye? And the immediate context supports that, that he's talking about generosity. Except this isn't just about generosity and finances, a generous giving. This is a generous seeing, 
a generosity of seeing that will translate into other kinds of generosity, including charitable giving. Uh, but even that expression of generosity flows out of this larger sense of how we see and learning to see more charitably. So that's sort of the question of the night. Are your eyes generous? Do you see other people with, with generous eyes? And that question really cuts me because a big theme in my own journey has been coming to terms with how uh, uncharitable and how, uh, how critical a part of me uh, has often tended to be. Uh, and I don't think I'm alone in this. Uh, think about these strong cultural critical currents that we live in uh, that, that are pulling all of us in this direction. Think about our public discourse, the news, the political arena. Uh, is that a place of generous seeing? Is that a place of charitable judgments? Uh, you think that our civil discourse doesn't affect how we talk to each other and see one another? Uh, how about social media? Is that a place for generous seeing when you cannot literally see the face of the person you're talking about and you may not even know them? Uh, does, does our technology lend itself to making charitable assumptions? How about in the church, among God's people? Uh, are churches known as places of generous eyes? When, when people feel ashamed, do they think, you know, I, I really need to feel soothed and safe right now. You know, I, th I think I'm feeling really ashamed. I, I think I better go to church. Are we, no are we known for our charitable judgments? Especially when we tell ourselves that we're standing up for God's truth against the slippery slope. Uh, I even saw uh, this week uh, on YouTube a clip uh, of a prominent speaker, a very large crowd, and it was really distressing to me because there was even a sort of uh, visible relish in the crowd when the speaker said, I'm going to name names. And it was, I mean, it was like spectators in the Colosseum. They were relishing this, this calling out. Uh, and it's subtle, I get it. No sooner do we shake our heads uh, at the comment section on a YouTube video than we might realize that we are standing in judgment in our self-righteousness against... Uh, we're judging the judges for their self-righteousness. So I get it, and that's kind of my point. This is kind of the water in which we swim. Most every commentator you know, points out we live in anxious times. We know we live in fearful times, that we're awash in fear and anxiety. But what's not always recognized is maybe how this affects how we see one another. Because what do anxious, fearful people uh, feel a need to do? What, what do we do when we're anxious and we're afraid? Um, we, we fight or we flight. You know, we fight, we defend, we attack, or we, we flight. That looks like withdrawing or pointing fingers or, or saying, you know, there's no point in even talking to you if you don't agree with me. Um, and, and you know what's really sad about this critical atmosphere that is the, that's the air we breathe, that it, it's hard to be charitable toward other people uh, when you're not very charitable with yourself. If your inner critic is harsh, that's going to distort how you see other people.
If you want to find evidence to confirm your dark suspicion about other people, you will always find what you're looking for. I try to remember that today when I meet people who tend to be critical or fault-finding, those who speak ill of others. I recognize that move because I've made it myself so often. And I've learned that people who judge others as not measuring up are often the harshest judges judges of themselves. I hope that helps you extend some compassion whenever you meet someone who is critical or fault-finding or who looks for things to criticize. You can be sure that shame is near at hand. And that is a dark place to live. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great, Jesus says, is that darkness. And there's a lot of darkness out there. And there's a lot of darkness in here in our hearts. If you think I'm overstating this, let's put it to the test. I'll give you three tests of, of, of generous seeing. First, next time you're in a public space, just pause. Set a timer for five minutes. Give yourself some space to recognize. Now, what comes into your mind when strangers pass in and out of your field of vision? Do you tend to see them charitably, these strangers? Of course, the test will be corrupted by the self-consciousness of the observer, and that's the point. It's the awareness of your awareness that snaps you out of your autopilot. That is, you'll notice how differently you do see when you're aware of how you're seeing. But what does that tell you about how we tend to see reflexively? Are your eyes generous? Second test, ask your best friend, or if you're married, ask your spouse. Do you think I tend to view other people with generous eyes? Is that how we tend to talk about others when we talk about others behind their backs? Do we consistently give other people the benefit of the doubt? Do charitable assumptions characterize your private conversations? Do you have generous eyes? Third test, to put it simply, how often do you make silent judgments about other people's intentions? How often do you presume to see into the secret machinations of another person's heart? And are those judgments about their intentions do those tend to be generous? A writer that I treasure, Parker Palmer, once wrote, Every epistemology becomes an ethic. That's not a word we use very often, but epistemology is a way of knowing. He continues, The shape of our knowledge becomes the shape of our living. The relation of the knower to the known becomes the relation of the living self to the larger world. Palmer is saying that the way we attend to others determines the kind of person we become. He's saying if we see people generously, we will become generous people. Or if we view them coldly, we will become cold. He's saying that how we see forms us. When we judge others, we place them in a prison. But he's saying it's a prison of our own perspective. And he's saying that the one we're really imprisoning is ourselves. David Brooks recently wrote an entire book on this subject, the subject of learning to see others more generously. 
The title is How to Know a Person, but his subtitle catches the idea. The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. Because for Brooks, this is an art. And like any art, some of us are more naturally more proficient than others. But for all of us to see others more generously is an acquired skill. It takes years of training and practice. It requires unlearning habitual patterns and learning new ones, new ways of generous seeing. In his book, Brooks talks about Iris Murdoch. Murdoch was not only a famous author, but she was a world-class philosopher, very much concerned with that ancient question, how can I be a better person? Murdoch argues that morality <clears throat> is not mostly about abstract universal principles or even about making big moral decisions during dramatic moments. Do I flee the scene of a hit-and-run crime? Rather, she says, morality is mostly about how you pay attention to other people. For Murdoch, moral formation happens continuously throughout our day as people pass in and out of our field of vision, how we see them. For Murdoch, the essential immoral act is our inability to see other people correctly. Human beings, she finds, are self-centered, anxiety-ridden, and resentful. We are constantly representing people to ourselves in self-serving ways that gratify our egos and serve our own ends. We stereotype and we dehumanize. And because we don't see people accurately, we treat them wrongly. For Murdoch, the essential moral act is being able to cast a just and loving attention on another person. She writes, Love is knowledge of the individual. You resist summing up in some particular way. You remember that none of us is reducible to our best or worst moments. We are all, Picasso once called us, a mass of antitheses. She's saying that love makes charitable assumptions, even when the evidence may suggest otherwise. I like how Brooks puts it. Most of the time, morality is about the skill of being considerate toward others in the complex situations of life. I like the skill of being considerate. He directs us to Murdoch's celebrated lecture, The Sovereignty of Good Over Other Concepts. There she describes a mother-in-law whom she calls M, who has contempt for her daughter-in-law, D. The mother-in-law is always perfectly polite to D, but inside she looks down on her. But M is aware that she can be a bit superior, conventional and old-fashioned. M is also aware that she probably harbors some sense of rivalry with D. After all, they're competing for her son's time and affections. Perhaps she realizes she is seeing D in a way that's unworthy. So one day, as an act of charity, she decides she's going to change the way she sees D. Before she saw D as coarse, but now she resolves to see her as spontaneous. Before she thought D was common, but now she will see her as fresh. M is trying to purge herself of her snobbery and become a better person. This has nothing to do with her outer behavior, which has remained exemplary. It has to do with the purification of what is inside, who she is inside. Good and evil, Murdoch believes, begin in the inner life, and M wants her inner life to be a little nicer, a little less mean. 
How we attend to people is personal, concrete, and very actionable. How we attend to people. Murdoch writes, we can grow by looking. Attention is a moral act. David Brooks says he finds this philosophy of moral development tremendously attractive and compelling, as do I. Paying attention turns out to be the purest form of love. But not just paying attention, suspending judgment. And not just suspending judgment, you can try this. Here's a practice toward the art of learning to see generously. I got this from Kelly Fabian's story. Go to a coffee shop today or tomorrow and try to see people. Don't stare at them, but have you ever noticed that uncomfortable eye co- how uncomfortable eye contact can be with a stranger? But do catch their eye and hold it and smile just a little longer than might feel comfortable. If you hold it, most likely they'll smile back. And then whisper. Not to them, that would be weird, but you can whisper to yourself about them. Jesus loves you and sees you. Jesus loves you and sees you. I go to Panera most every day, so much so that I know most of the staff there by name and most of the regulars. I've adopted Kelly's practice, and now that I know their names, it's even more powerful. I can say, Bobby, Jesus loves you and sees you. Daniela, Jesus loves you and sees you. Kiki, Jesus loves you and sees you. There's a couple of old curmudgeonly guys, and I say that because we frequently sit near one another and I can overhear their conversations. But it's changed. Jesus loves you and sees you. That's reframed how I hear their conversations and how I see them, how I relate. We like to think we know someone when we know some truth about them, some fact maybe, something unflattering. But Jesus, He sees. Jesus sees with the objective eyes of the scientist who sees all of the data, but Jesus also sees with the grace-filled eyes of perfect love, both. And Jesus helps us see that if we don't see the other person with the eyes of love, then we don't know them. Even if we think we see them, we don't see. Even if we see, we don't see. You might remember in one of Jesus' most famous stories, a man is beaten and alone, left on the side of the road. Two others pass him by, and each one of them, Jesus points out, sees him. They see, but they didn't see, did they? They didn't see him. Only the Samaritan, Luke 10 records, a man from a hated tribe and an alien people, only the Samaritan truly sees him. Only the Samaritan enters into the mess, disrupts his plans and schedule, gets his hands dirty, and sacrifices to serve the man in need. He proved to love his neighbor. How did it begin? With truly seeing him. In the biblical sense of knowing. In the biblical sense of knowing, when we don't see generously, these are not just failures of knowledge. These are failures of love. These are breaking the greatest commandment. Turns out that truth without love really isn't the truth because it's not the whole truth. Because the whole truth is grace-filled eyes. The whole truth tells us that love is the ground of all being. I give you a new commandment that you love one another 
just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. What else is Jesus asking of us but to learn to see with generous eyes? And this is a practice. It's a practice that if it becomes embedded, will, over time, and it takes time, change how you see and relate to people. Maybe to adapt Iris Murdoch's example, you can apply it to someone who really frustrates you or you have a hard time forgiving or accepting. When they come to mind, you can replace those critical comments with, Jesus sees you and loves you. Jesus sees you and loves you. Jesus sees you and loves you. So how can I sit in judgment over you? This person is so important, Jesus was willing to die for their sake. How can I depreciate them in my estimation? This person is of such inestimable value in God's eyes that God gave His own life to make them His child. I would be incensed if someone talked about my child in a hurtful or spiteful way. Well, this is God's child, so who am I? How can I, who has been forgiven an incomparably greater debt, hold anything over them when the only reason I draw breath is because God has been merciful to me? How do you see? The eye is the lamp. Those were obviously days before electricity and dimmers, but what if we saw seeing generously as a way of turning up the light? More light. More light. That can change your whole life, Jesus says. If your eye is generous, your whole body will be full of light, he says. You'll become what Brooks calls an illuminator. An illuminator. But if we persist in our uncharitable, critical, if our eye is stingy, Jesus says your whole body will be full of darkness. Every epistemology becomes an ethic. The way we see becomes who we are. When you see people making bad decisions, you can choose to see vulnerable, love-seeking people sometimes caught in bad situations. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Generous eyes. Jesus is the only one who does see clearly the intentions, the motives of our hearts. But He used this as an occasion to make a charitable judgment. They don't know what they're doing. Doesn't that sound like a light, a lighter way to live? I like Murdoch's story about the mother-in-law choosing to replace those judgments because it's honest about the work involved in learning to see others generously. I also like how Murdoch points out she, had, she was always polite because if you haven't learned this by now, nice people can be some of the most vicious in our judgments. I gave you Kelly's practice of whispering, Jesus sees you and loves you. I'm going to give you in closing one more picture because we need to see that this new seeing is not only possible, it's God's desire for us to live as children of the light whose lives are full of light. So what I want you to do in closing, I want you to call to mind someone who fills you with frustration, disappointment, or resentment. Choose one person. Go ahead, picture their face, and say their name silently. The social science researcher Brene Brown then asks you to consider this question, what if they're doing the best they can? 
What if they're doing the best they can? Do you believe that people are doing the best that they can? Before you answer, absolutely not. Of course they could be doing better. And they should be doing better. That's why I'm so frustrated. Brown said that when someone, her therapist, suggested this to her, she was appalled. I'm paying you for this advice? Ridiculous. Later that day, though, she witnessed a customer behaving rudely and with racist overtones to a bank teller, insisting that her bank statement was wrong and demanding to see a supervisor of a different race. Afterwards, Brown asked the bank teller if he thought the customer was doing her best. He wasn't upset. He shrugged and said he figured the customer was scared about her money and she was doing the best she could in her moment of fear. Well, Brown was stunned. Exactly what her counselor had said to her earlier that day. Maybe those two were outliers. So Brown began doing what researchers do. She began asking others the question, are people generally doing the best they can? She wanted to do a formal research project with hundreds, even thousands of documented responses. And she found to her shock that people who see others generously live what she calls a more wholehearted and joyful life, a freer life. Making charitable assumptions. This is how we embody kindness. This is what kindness looks like, generous eyes. Given their circumstances, their abilities, their circumstances of the world, and the mental and emotional tools at their disposal, they're doing the best they can. If they knew better, they do better. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If they only knew what would bring them peace. You remember when Jesus said that? He was looking over Jerusalem. If they only knew what would bring them peace. And you remember, he wept. Brene Brown says that when she teaches about people doing their best, that people in her workshops start to glimpse a completely new reality and new paths to go forward. One woman said, if this were true, and my mother was doing the best she can, I would be grief-stricken. I'd rather be angry than sad. So it's easier to believe she's letting me down on purpose than to grieve the fact that my mom is never going to be who I need her to be. It's a lot in that line. A corporate head said about one of his subordinates, Man, if he's really doing the best he can, I'm a total jerk, and I need to stop harassing him and start helping him. Exactly. Think again of the person you identified a few minutes back. Can you find a way to imagine that given their mental and emotional tools at that moment, that that person is doing their best? What if they're doing the best they can? This is just a tool and it's not an invitation to passivity or quietism, but it is an invitation to compassion, to bear with one another in love. That's what the Bible says, bear with one another in love. How could that be possible except through generous eyes? The gospel gives us wisdom, but the gospel gives us more than wisdom. The gospel gives us power. Jesus gives us power. In Christ, you have the power to replace the energy of your critical parts with something stronger, something bigger, something better. Wholehearted, 
unconditional acceptance of grace-filled eyes. And if your eye is generous, your whole body, your whole life will be full of light. That sounds like a good way to live. That's the Jesus way. So in closing, ask once more, do you have generous eyes? Well, you know what they say. The eye is the lamp of the body.